0: How is everybody? Good, 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 good. Uh, two funny stories, one, um, last week when I asked you guys to stand up and say hi to someone you don't know, I didn't know that Corey had already done that during the announcements and everyone kind of hesitated for a second and I was like, wow, what a really rude crowd today, not knowing uh, that he would already done that. So, um, you know, you guys are just going to be lonely because I'm not going to do that anymore, so you can thank Corey for the fact that you're not going to have any friends at church now. So. Uh, <laughs> The other other funny story, I thought I'd tell you this because it's a good Super Bowl and fast story. So, about six or seven years ago, Joey Odom, uh, who comes to church here, he was doing the fast and he's a big football fan. And and, um, he's one of the guys that helped start uh, the 5,000 ministry that we do. But he was telling me, he was doing the fast and he's like, hey, you know, the Lord's like really put it on my heart. I'm not going to watch football as part of the fast. And I was like, oh, dude, that's awesome, you know. that's great. And then a couple of weeks went by and it hit him that the Super Bowl falls in that time, right? And so he called me. He's like, dude, I got to talk to you. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, the Super Bowl falls during the fast. I'm like, man, just watch the Super Bowl. It's not a big deal. And he goes, but God told me not to watch any football. And I was like, I guess you're screwed then. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> so no Super Bowl for you. So um <laughs> His fast looked different next, you know, the year after that. He like made sure he planned it out to where, you know, he could watch the Super Bowls. So, anyways, if you've never been to the church before, we've been working through uh, the Gospel of John. Um, that's the fourth book of the New Testament. We're in the eleventh chapter. We're going to finish up the eleventh chapter, and we're going to get about halfway through the twelfth chapter, and um, we'll kind of see where the Lord leads us today. Very, very interesting. If you weren't here last week. Chapter 11 is very famous. It's very famous because Jesus does one of his bigger miracles in chapter 11 where he raises a guy named Lazarus from the dead, right? He's been dead for four days, and Jesus tells him to come out of the tomb, and he comes out of the tomb and freaks a bunch of people out. And, um, but he's alive, right? And he did this big thing. And so we talked about last week that in a culture that is fixated on death and apathy and, sl- uh, apathy and sleep, as we called it, that we have to be connected with God, we need God to bring us back to life, right? To show us what living really is. That's what we talked about last week. This week we're going to talk about this about how do we begin to turn the world upside down? Once upon a time Christianity was identified as the group of people who were turning the world upside down. And so we have to ask ourselves, how do we make this kind of impact? Many people say that the world's already upside down, so maybe how do we turn it right side up, right? So how do we go out and impact the world around us? That's what we're gonna get into a little bit today. Um, I hope you guys keep your notes, um, but if you don't, I wanna encourage you, keep this week's notes. They're important, and we'll get to why here at the end of it, Um, but there's just some questions and some things that kinda hit at our our core a little bit that we need to talk about today. So hang on to these, right, and keep hold of these. You should have notes in front of you. Everything I'm gonna say is gonna be on there. Um, I'm gonna read the chapter to you uh, and break it down to the best of my ability. Before, they, before I do that, we'll, um, we'll pray and we'll see where the Lord takes us, okay? All right. Lord Jesus, God, I just wanna thank you. I wanna thank you, Lord, for everything you're doing in our church and in our community. And Lord God, we pray that you bless every church in our city pray that you bless all the nonprofits, Lord, uh, particularly Portico that we're highlighting this month, God, because of the just very important work that they do. Lord, God, pray that you bless them. Pray, God, that we can advance your kingdom and your gospel, Lord, not us, not our agenda, but yours, Father. Lord, we pray that you open up our eyes and our ears today, God. Lord, let us understand what your word says, and Lord, let us accept it and, and, and just soak it in and use it and apply it to our lives, God. Lord, help me to be kind with my words today and accurate with my words today, God. And I pray that this lesson just blesses you and, and uh, honors you, God. And Lord, we pray that you touch Tom, Tom Brady's arms tonight, God, and, and let him be accurate and precise. In Jesus' name, amen. That's not very Christian-like for people to boo me, right? That's not, that's not right. <laughs> At the nine, I'm serious, it was like this boo, like, like the place rumbled. And I was like, Jesus wouldn't have booed me for that. Jesus loves Tom Brady. Okay, let's get to the Bible, right? That's why we're here. Okay. We're, <laughs> we're in chapter 11. I'm gonna start on verse 45. Okay, here we go. This is right after uh, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the grave. Okay. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and said, what are we going to do since this man does many signs? If we let him continue in this way, everyone will believe in him. Then the Romans will come and remove both our place and our nation." One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say these things on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, not just for the nation only, but to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a small town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with his disciples. The Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple complex, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, they should report it so they could arrest Jesus. Okay, so like I said, this happens almost immediately after Lazarus is raised from the grave. And because of Lazarus's resurrection, Many Jews, not just Jewish people, but Jewish leaders, religious leaders, were becoming followers of Jesus, Jesus, but the ones that were not believing that he was the Messiah, the ones who might have either witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus or at least heard of it, the ones who did not like Jesus, went back to the other Pharisees and they reported this, and they convened what is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is essentially uh, what we would call the Supreme Court, right? So the most powerful religious leaders would get together and they would make decisions about the community at this thing called the Sanhedrin. Now what's interesting about this group of individuals is none of them denied that Jesus did the miraculous. The Sanhedrin was made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes, three different groups that adamantly did not like Jesus. And they all got together, and they didn't deny that Jesus did miraculous things. But their love for their religious history and the power that religion gave them clouded their judgment to the point to where they wanted to kill Jesus. It got into their comfort zone, and they wanted to take him out. Now listen, there is nothing wrong with church history. I love church history, in fact. I have many leather-bound books in my office about church history, right? That was a joke about a movie that I shouldn't watch. But anyways, I have many books about church history in my office. Love church history. I even like some of the traditions of the church. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But here's the problem that religion tends to get into. When people start taking the reins from God and steering the ship the the way that they want to go, we are always destined for trouble. Whenever we start thinking that we can find a better pathway to righteousness than what the Word says, and we do that through religious repetition, there becomes a problem that's dangerous, okay? So the main antagonist of the story, the the leader of all leaders in the Jewish faith, was Caiaphas. And though the Jews had more powerful political figures, there was King Herod, and there was, of course, the Roman government in charge of them, There was really no louder or more profound voice in the Jewish community than the high priest, because the high priest would have been perceived as the voice of God. So whatever he says, everyone had to obey because he was the mouthpiece of God. So what we see though is this, the political influence that the religious leaders had ultimately led them to be corrupt and self-serving. Guys, look how much I've matured. I put a note on here to not get on a political, religious rant right there and how those two things shouldn't be blended together. Look at that. Aren't you guys impressed with that? Look what the fast has done, right? So let's move on to the next slide. There it was, that easy. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. See, I'm going to start putting those notes for myself up there more often so you guys know when I should shut up. So an evil man, Caiaphas, actually gave a prophecy. The arrogant high priest made a prophecy and it was way beyond his own understanding. Earlier that year, he made a prophecy that Jesus would die and it would unite a nation. He's correct, he was going to die and it was going to unite a people, but he thought it was going to unite them under Judaism, under the religion. And now Jesus' death united people globally, but not under an institution, it united them under him as Christians and followers of him. So this man gave a prophecy, but he had no idea that it would play out the way that it did. So at this point in the story, Jesus' ministry on earth was done. It was coming to a close. And so the official plan of the Sanhedrin, this Jewish council, was to kill Jesus. The religious people got together and said, our plan is to kill him. So Jesus no longer walked openly amongst the people. It says that he retreated kind of to the countryside and stayed in an area called Ephraim until he came back into Jerusalem. That's not because he was afraid of anybody. His time just had not yet come, but it was getting close. And so as Passover approached in Jerusalem, the crowds kept looking for the now extremely famous Jesus who raised Lazarus from the grave. They wanted to meet Jesus who did this miracle, but they didn't know that an even greater miracle was just a week away, that he was gonna raise himself from the grave. Next part. So six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet and wiped His feet with her hair, so the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Then one of His disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was about to betray Him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He didn't say this because He cared about the poor, but because He was a thief He was in charge of the money bag and would steal part of it that was put in it. Jesus answered, leave her alone. She has kept it for the day of my burial, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Then a large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, and they came not only because of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, the one who had raised from the dead. Therefore, the chief priest decided to kill Lazarus also, because he was the reason many of the Jews were deserting them in believing in Jesus, okay? So we briefly talked about this last week. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 11, John very briefly says, Mary, the one who anointed Jesus' feet, and then he kind of moves on. Now, right here, we go into a little bit more detail about this event, So Mary, Mary Magdalene, who was a follower of Christ, right, and her brother Lazarus, who was raised from the grave, had a half liter of extremely expensive perfume. It was very pure, very valuable. And when she broke this open and poured it on Jesus' feet, this would have been an act of extreme humility. So in this time... Women would not let their hair down in front of men and would not let their hair down in public, okay? They wouldn't do that. It was, it was looked at as dis, uh, disrespectful and disgraceful. So what Mary does is Jesus comes into the house and sits down, she cooks him dinner, she takes her hair down, lets her hair down in front of Jesus, takes the most expensive, valuable thing she has, breaks it open, pours it on his feet, and starts to wipe his feet with her hair. She could not have humbled herself anymore. Now, this wasn't a sacrifice. There's a difference between a sacrifice and an investment. A sacrifice you just assume to get nothing back, right? You're sacrificing it. She was not sacrificing. She was investing in him. She knew that he was the Savior, knew that he was everything he claimed to be. So she took everything that was valuable to her, put it at the feet of Jesus, knowing that one day she would get so much more back in return knowing that it was a good investment to put everything into him. So how valuable was this stuff, right? I remember a, my, my wife's been wearing the same perfume for like 12 years, and every year I bought her a, a new bottle of this perfume. And this last Christmas, I went to go buy some, and it was like $110 or something for this perfume. And I'm like, what the heck? I remember when it was half that much, right? When I started buying this. That's how you know you're getting old, right? I remember when it was half this, you know, and had to walk uphill to get this perfume. But anyways, (laughs) so I'm buying this perfume. I'm like, geez, that's gotten expensive. That's nothing compared to what this was, right? The perfume that Mary had was the equivalent to a year's salary, so they say in Tennessee, the average person, or not the average person, but the average uh, uh, person with a college degree that works 40 hours a week makes in the neighborhood of 50 dollars to $55,000 a year. And so you've got to think, a jar of perfume that's, let's say, worth $55,000 in our day and age, that she takes this, and it helps us understand how big of a deal this sacrifice was. This was, in essence, her life savings, This is her security, her income. This was very important to her. And it helps us understand that her breaking this open and pouring it on a guy's feet was a big deal. But it's not a money thing. Don't think of it as a money thing. This is a woman who laid everything she had at the feet of Jesus. Her security, her livelihood, her future, her pleasure, her comforts, everything were set down at Jesus' feet for his honor. Do you see how big that is? She was saying, all I have, Jesus, this is yours. All I have, this is yours. And this act perplexed one of the disciples. They're all sitting around this house, right around this table. And Judas, who was the treasurer, he was the money keeper, seemingly noble. Judas, Judas says, guys, we could have sold that and fed a ton of poor people with that. Why didn't we do that? That's a year's salary. We could have fed tons of people with that. Now that sounds good except for the fact that Judas was a thief. He was the one in charge of carrying the money. I do this like he had a fanny pack, right? Like he was the guy in charge of the money and he would sometimes reach into the money bag and take money for himself. That's why he wishes that they would have sold it. Now when you go into the gospels, no one has anything nice to say about Judas, no one. John especially, he calls him a devil. Says that he was outwardly moral. That means he wasn't inwardly moral. He was a selfish thief. He was a hypocrite. He even says he goes so far to call him the son of perdition, like the Antichrist, right? Like John and and the other disciples did not like Judas very much because of his betrayal. But something Judas brings up is actually kind of important that we need to take note of. We do need to take care of the poor. We're told by Jesus, we're told by Paul, by Peter, by James, by many people in the Bible that we are to take care of the less fortunate. But when we do that, we need to make sure that our motives are right. We live in what I call a bumper sticker generation, right? We don't actually do anything to change the world. We just stick stickers all over the back of our car saying how everyone should change the world, right? And so we see someone who has anti-this and pro-this and I do this and recycle that, all these things on their car. But if you were to take a poll and walk up to those people and say, hey, how much of your income do you give to these charities that do these things? Uh, Well, I bought the sticker. Well, $2 isn't going to change the world. Guys, and so sometimes I think we want the accolades and everyone thinking we're benevolent, but we're not actually doing as much as we think we are. So we need to check our motives. Do I actually care about helping the poor and impoverished, or do I just want people to think that I'm a good person? The other thing is, are we enabling people? It's not love if we are enabling people to stay in the position they've always been in. We have to give them the tools and the resources and, quite frankly, the time and the energy to get out of the situation that they're in. Man, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article for the paper. It was uh, titled, Please Help, Don't Give. And it was about that I don't think it's a good idea for us to just throw money at people on the streets on the corners the reason why I don't believe that's a good idea is we would have women come into this church whose boyfriends would prostitute them and beat the snot out of them and make them stand on that corners and the more money that we threw at them the more that their boyfriends would beat them and make them stand on the corner I don't want to give money to domestic abuse I don't want to give money to drug addiction So I said, maybe it would be a better thing if you got behind some of the great organizations in our town, like Greenhouse or Journey Home or Cold Patrol or 5,000 or all the other different organizations work with them and go the long haul with these people, not just roll down your window and throw them five bucks. Oh man, I'm a good person. No, but actually getting to know these people and getting involved in organizations that are doing everything they can to help change people's circumstances. That's what we need to do. That's my rant for the day. I'll move on. And so Jesus looked at Judas and he said, leave her alone, man, leave her alone. And when he rebukes Judas, he says, she has kept this for the day of my burial. What he was talking about, probably no one in the room got this, but what he was talking about is his death was coming up very soon. And he was saying, she is doing this. She's honoring me because I'm about to leave. Mary probably didn't even realize the depth of what she was doing And then Jesus looks at Judas and he says, Judas, the poor will always be with you, but I'm not always going to be with you. Again, he's foreshadowing. He's about to leave. But what this does, this simple statement, the poor will always be with you, is that puts our priorities in order. Listen, the poor, the, the weak, the people who are hurting, they are vitally important, but we are not capable of going out and helping people unless we first are filled up with the Spirit of God. We must first take care of our soul before we can go out and pour in to other people. And Jesus sets us straight on that. So what was happening is, is people were beginning to change. It says that many of the Jews were deserting their faith and believing in Jesus. And a lot of that was because of Lazarus. He was going, I mean, if you were dead for four days and got resurrected, you'd tell a lot of people about that. And he told a lot of people about that. And because of that, people were going to Jesus. And so the Pharisees were getting so upset. They said, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to kill Lazarus too. I mean, the guy's already been dead once, you know, like, and they're going to go after him too. So listen, large groups of people, listen, this is probably why some of you are here. Large groups of people were consciously choosing to leave the comforts of their religion to pursue a relationship with Jesus. Jesus. They were choosing to leave the comforts of religion to pursue a relationship with Jesus. Why? Because to them, the proof of his deity was in the results of his commands. Wow. If we do what Jesus tells us to do, things happen. Things happen. So here's an important recap, just to hammer this point home. First is this. Helping other people is not an option for Christians. It is mandated. Jesus says, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. People said, what in the heck are you talking about? And he said, when you helped the poor, when you helped the naked, when you visited the prisoners, that glorified me, that was good. And so we are mandated to help others, but we cannot properly help others unless we are filled up with the spirit of God. Is Christianity a religion? Yes, technically it is. It's the largest religion on planet earth, but it is not religious repetition that saves us. It is not religious repetition that saves us. It is a relationship with Jesus. You can go to church seven days a week, but if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you will not be saved. Following his commands also produce results. If you want to see results in your life, in your family, in the world around you, follow the commands of Jesus and you will see results. Very, very simple stuff. Okay, last part. Just to set this up, this is the last week of Jesus' life. So everything we're going to cover from here on out in the Gospel of John happens in a very short period of time, okay? So the next day, when the large crowd that had come to the festival heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. They kept shouting, Hosanna, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one, the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear no more, daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Meanwhile, the crowd which had been with him, and he called Lazarus out of the tomb, raised him from the dead, they continued to testify. This is also why the crowd met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. Then the Pharisees said to one another, You see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So this is the final week of Jesus's life on earth, right? He's about 33 and a half years old. He's been ministering for about three and a half years. And this is gonna be the conclusion of his, his, his time on earth coming up very soon. Up until this point, Jesus has been very soft. is probably not the best word, but very soft about his identity. People would ask him, who are you? He would tell them, but he was kind of in the background a little bit, if you will. At this point, that changes. He is coming into Jerusalem at the biggest festival of the year. For the first time in the scripture, he is riding on a donkey. He comes in and he is accepting the accolades that he is the king of Israel. As he's coming in, they are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That simply means save now or save us now, which was probably referring to the fact that the Roman government was oppressing the Jews and they were wanting their savior to come in and save them from a government. Jesus didn't want to save them from a government. Jesus wanted to save them from something much bigger and much worse that is sin and evil and hell. That's what he wanted to save them from. Was he coming in to save them? Yes, but not from a government, but from evil. That's why he was coming in. And so often when we watch Christian movies, right, We see scenes like this, and they're not very big. It's probably because they don't have the budget to bring in all these kinds of people, but we see scenes where Jesus is walking through Jerusalem during his last week, and there might be hundreds of people around, maybe even thousands. They estimate in Jerusalem during the Passover week, in Jesus' last Passover, that there was an estimated 2.7 million people walking around. Just to give you perspective, Metro Nashville is about 1.4. So almost twice the size of Metro Nashville, tons of people walking around this city. Not just tons of people, they would have estimated that it would take a quarter of a million lambs to be slaughtered to come in and properly sacrifice what they needed to to roll back all this sin for this festival. So imagine, they bring in twice as many lambs as we have people in Murfreesboro bringing them into this town. And so when Jesus rolled in the main drag, right, and he's coming in and they're laying down palm branches, this wouldn't have been a couple hundred people. This probably would have been hundreds of thousands of people crowded and just packed. And they make a way for him and they're laying down these palm branches, which was kind of a, a, a national symbol of, of the Jews. They're laying these things down and they're rolling out the red carpet, or green carpet, I guess, right? Rolling out the red carpet for Jesus coming in and they're calling him the king of Israel. So Jesus rides for the first time. If you've studied all the gospels, and my, I think, unless I'm wrong, I, I, I could be, there's one instance where Jesus is not walking walking where he goes somewhere, and this is it. He's riding on a, on a small donkey as he comes in uh, uh, to Jerusalem. Now, riding on the donkey was important because there were several books of the Bible that prophesied that the Savior would come in on a young donkey, and that's why he does that. Another reason why he comes in on a young donkey is if you go back to the book of Exodus, whenever they brought in the main sacrificial lamb for Passover, that they would sacrifice in front of the whole city, that sacrificial lamb would be brought in by a donkey. And so he comes in, Jesus, because he is the ultimate sacrifice. He is going to be the last sacrifice that humanity needs for sin. And he comes in as the sacrificial lamb. And that brings something up that's interesting. Everything Jesus did... Everything he did in the Bible was for a purpose. Nothing was done haphazardly or an accident. There are 44 blatant prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. I'm talking blatant. And there's over 300 prophecies that I call minor prophecies that he also fulfilled. People have done the research. If you research what's the probability that a man could be born and fulfill all these prophecies, 340-something prophecies, it's like one in several billion. You literally have a greater chance of getting struck by lightning twice then one has the probability of fulfilling all of these prophecies. So look what that does for our faith to see how this is built up. So when John was writing this book of the Bible, though, he was much older. And so he's looking back, and John loved Jesus and all the disciples except for Judas, loved Jesus and believed in him. But when all this was going on, they were still immature in their faith. They didn't get it all yet. And so when this book of the Bible was written, John was an old man at this time. And as he looked back, he was basically saying, man, in the moment, we didn't get how big of a deal that week was. We didn't get the enormity and the immensity of this week. It was a huge deal. And so what we see, like the disciples, this is important, our faith takes time to mature. We we haven't arrived yet. And if you think you've arrived, that's a bad place to be. We're always growing. We're always maturing. We're always getting closer to Jesus Christ, hopefully. And we should be working towards a more solid commitment to Jesus. But we're always moving towards him. We're always gravitating towards him, okay? So the reason why this crowd was so big that met Jesus in Jerusalem was because the couple of hundred people that saw Lazarus be raised from the grave they started going out into this sea of people in Jerusalem and they started telling everyone, right? Hey, do you know who Jesus is? Yeah, I've heard of him. What, you know, have you met him? Like, not only did I meet him, I saw him raise this guy from the dead, Lazarus. Wow, really? I heard about that. Hey, man, did you hear that this guy knew Jesus? And it spread like wildfire all over the city. And so millions of people were starting to hear who Jesus was and they all started to show up. So this rapid spreading of not only the works of Jesus, but the identity of Jesus. This outraged the Sanhedrin. This outraged the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. This was just making them want to blow their top with anger, right? So what they do is they all convene, they all get together, probably in the temple somewhere, they get together and they're yelling at each other. Who dropped the ball? Who let Jesus in? Why are so many people following him? And they say something profound, they say, look, The world has gone after him. Now that's an exaggeration. The world hadn't gone after him yet. In fact, only a little bitty sliver of the world even knew who he was, just Israel. Jesus never left Israel. So it was a small group of people. So this phrase was an exaggeration, but it was also another unintended prophecy. They didn't know how big the phrase, look, the world has gone after him, really was. And when John wrote this, he uses the Greek word cosmos, which means the entire planet has gone after him. Now, that hadn't happened yet. But this word cosmos foreshadows the tremendous impact that normal people would have on earth if they would simply live out their faith and tell other people about Jesus. So little did John know (laughs) that eventually he would impact the entire globe, that the whole world would go after him, that there would be billions and billions of people that would follow Jesus Christ and it would be the largest faith on the entire planet. So, we're gonna get into the book of Acts later this year. I'm excited about that. And when we get into the book of Acts, we're gonna see, after Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, how people went out and spread the gospel to the entire globe. One of the people that did that was a guy named Paul. And a lot of people have heard of Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. Well, Paul wasn't always Paul. Paul was Saul once upon a time. And Saul wasn't a good man. In fact, he was trained up by these Pharisees that don't like Jesus, right? He was trained by the same men that had Jesus killed. And so Paul went out and he would persecute and kill people and have other people kill people who followed Jesus. In fact, the first person that ever died for Jesus was a young man named Stephen. He was the first martyr. And it says in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 7, that as they were killing Stephen, they handed their coats to a young man named Saul. That's the apostle Paul, right? Eventually, though, some of you know the story. Many of you probably know the story. Saul got saved, became Paul. His name was changed, started going out and spread the gospel like wildfire. In fact, he would mostly spread it, spread it to a lot of Greeks and a lot of Romans. And one time he was in a, in a city called Thessalonica and he was ministering to the Greeks. The Greeks, I don't know if you know this, they're the ones that created philosophy. They were the, they were the uh, intellectuals, right? We're typically afraid of those as Christians and Paul just went right at them, right? So he went and started ministering to the intellectuals. And this is a crazy thing is many of them started believing in Jesus in this city called Thessalonica. So all these people were coming to Jesus. And what happened? The synagogue found out. The Jews found out. and They got super mad. And so they went to the house of Paul's buddy, Jason. That's where Paul was crashing on his couch, right? And they went to to Jason's house. They pulled out all the Christians from the house, pulled them in front of the government. And this is how they identified the Christians, these are the people that have turned the world upside down because they say that there is one king, Jesus. Once upon a time, Christianity wasn't dubbed as judgmental and out of touch and mean and bigoted. and we weren't, we weren't labeled as that. We were labeled as the people that went and flipped the world upside down. So Jesus drew the world to him, and he commissioned his followers to flip it upside down. That's what he gave us the ability to do through the power of His Holy Spirit. So we are the ones commissioned to do very extraordinary things in His name. If you go back and read the Bible, all the way from the beginning all the way to the end, the majority of the people that God uses were pretty messed up people, right? They did a lot of crazy things. In fact, my wife right now is doing a study of the patriarchs, the the fathers of our faith, like Abraham. If you guys knew this about Abraham, I knew this, but it's like when you go back and study it again, you're like, dude, you know, we often think that like the people in the Bible like levitated around, you know, because they were perfect. That's why God chose them, because they just levitated and were good all the time. Abraham, right, where our faith kind of began, Abraham was traveling through Egypt one time, was afraid that the Pharaoh was going to kill him, so he said his wife was his sister, And so the Pharaoh took his wife, who he thought was his sister, and was going to sleep with her. And then eventually, God told Pharaoh that no, you shouldn't do that because that's his wife. And Pharaoh came back and said, "Why didn't you tell me?" And so it's an interesting thing. We often think of these people in the Bible as being perfect. This dude was willing. He was such a coward. He was going to let another dude sleep with his wife. Man, someone like looks at my wife cross, and I'm like, "You want to go?" You know? And I mean, like this guy was going to let another dude sleep with her. No one's going to look at Alicia anymore. They're just like, hey, Alicia, you know, like, but that's the kind of guy Abraham was, but God got a hold of him and changed him and corrected him. And so oftentimes we read about the amazing things that God did through other people, but we feel like we're incapable. We feel like we can't make a positive impact on the world. Why? Why? Why do we feel like this? Let me tell you why. Because most of us don't trust God as much as we say we do. That's me too. Though God can do anything. He's a healer. He can do the miraculous. He can change all these things. He's going to come back and set everything straight. Did you know the spirit of God lives in us? And that we were the ones who are commissioned by him to go out and do something about the world around us. He ascended into heaven, and when he ascended into heaven, he says, okay, now it's your turn. I'll be with you. You'll have my spirit, but it is now your time to go out. If the world is going to get any better, it is going to be at the hands of Christians. When Jesus comes back again, it's going to be too late at that point. So in between the time that Jesus went up and the time Jesus comes back, you know whose responsibility it is? It's ours. It's ours. It's ours. But we don't trust the spirit of God in us. Or maybe we're not connected with the spirit of God enough to have trust. Or we don't understand that making an impact on people takes time. It is a process. There's a great video you should watch about millennials in the workplace by Simon Sinek. And he says that we live in a culture right now that they see the summit of a mountain. And that's impact. That's what we all want, right? We want to be at the top of the mountain. But we forget the fact that you have to climb the mountain to get there. And so we all wanna change the world, right? We all wanna make an impact. We all wanna go and feed every person in Africa or change our entire city or whatever the case may be, but we fail to realize that that takes a process. That takes time. So what do we do? Where do we begin? Guys, I'm gonna underwhelm you so much with this. Where do we begin? People come up to me all the time, it's like, Corey, God told me to go to Africa, I'm gonna feed two million people this year. I'm gonna fix hunger in Africa. And I'm like, dude, you can't even like get your family in order. Why in the world do you think you're going to go change a continent when you can't get your own home in order? If we're going to start to change the world, guys, you know where it starts? In your house. Did you know I can't even be a minister according to the Bible if my house is not in order? Did you know the Bible said that? That you can't be an elder of the church, you can't be a leader in the church unless your home is in order? That's what the Bible says. Until we start treating the people closest to us like Jesus treats us with grace and tenderness and respect and honesty, we have no busy business going out trying to change the world if we can't treat the ones closest to us like Jesus treats us. Okay. So, Corey, I've got my home in pretty good order. Now what? Okay, let's go out a little bit further. What about our work? What about our schools? Listen, Christians should be known as the hardest worker at your job. And you guys are super quiet. We should be known as the hardest workers. We should be the ones willing to go the extra mile. We should set an example. Students in here, it is not an exam, a good example of Christ if you're flunking out of all your classes. That is not a good witness. Do you know why you work hard? Not for your boss, not for your teacher, not for your pastor, not for your parents. It says in the Bible that we work unto the Lord. So when we work hard, that honors God. That honors him. So why do we work? Corey, my boss is awful. You're not working for him. You're not working for her. You're working unto the Lord. So we're to have a good work ethic. We're not to gossip. We're to be kind. We're to be patient. We're to be positive. We're to be an outlet, not an outlet for gossip. We don't partake in that. But if your marriage has fallen apart and we work with each other, you should be able to come tell me. You should be able to to just listen to people and be there for them. Okay, hey, let's get lunch together today. Let's take our 15-minute break together today. Let's, Let's talk. Let's get together after work. I want to be there for you. In other words, we are called to be a light in the workplace. We are called to be a light in our schools, in our institutions, okay? Okay, so we go from our home, right, How do we change the world? We start with our home, we go to our schools and our workplaces, and then we go to our microcosm. So the cosmos is the entire planet. Our microcosm is a small version of that. That's my world, right? Where I get food, where I grocery shop, where I get coffee, where I work out or where I I shop or do whatever I need to do. That's my microcosm. And how I talk to people in that microcosm, how friendly I am, how much I show the love of Christ to them, right? That's where we start. So before we go tackle whole continents, let's work on our homes, let's work on our schools and our our places of employment, and then let's work on our little microcosm, our little world, right? Okay, so that's where we begin. But how do we do it? Again, I'm gonna underwhelm you. We have to pray, Listen, we have 2,800 people that come to this church. That's a big church. Do you know how many people come to our Monday night prayer gatherings? About 15. Do you know how many come to our Monday morning prayers that we have Monday through Saturday from 6.30 to 9.30 Monday through Friday? And from, I think, 9 to noon on Saturday, we got about 25 or 30. Guys, listen. I know some of you are awesome prayer warriors, and you don't have to pray in this church. But with a church that size, more people should be present Praying. You know what? God didn't tell us to build a house of worship or a house of good teaching. You know what Jesus told us to build? A house of prayer. A house of prayer. That's what we're to be doing. Listen, if you're a man in here, you need to be praying for your kids every night. You should hear my eight year old pray, and I'm not bragging on me, but you should hear Aya pray sometime. Eight years old, she has turned eight. Man, she is a phenomenal prayer warrior. You should hear her pray. But she didn't just learn that. She didn't just pick up on the, from nothing. We had to pray with her every night, and then we would give her opportunities to pray. And not just like simple little songs, but we would actually like pray deep prayers. But we need to do this. We need to model this. We need to model prayer for our families. We need to pray for our families. We need to pray for our neighbors and our friends. We need to pray for our governments. Let me get on a soapbox here for a second. Listen, I remember when Barack Obama was president and all the hardcore right-wingers slapped 666 on his head and said he was the antichrist and were extremely disrespectful. And then when Trump gets elected, we do the same thing. The hardcore left does that and we hate him. And all this fervor and people in this church that speak hateful to each other over political things. Do you want to know why everyone who's in power is in power? Romans 13, because God placed them there. And it's not our obligation to agree with everything they say or even like them, but it is the Christian's obligation to pray for them. And I know we don't like that either, guys, but if you want to know something more constructive to do with your time than to start fires at campuses and rail about how evil people are and whatever you think about them, take time to pray for your government officials. Go back and read the book of Daniel. Daniel's government official was throwing people in a furnace, and he prayed for that. And you know what happened to the guy? He eventually got saved. Crazy stuff, right? That we're to pray for our governments. We're to pray for our teachers. We're to pray for non-believers. We're to pray for the Muslim community, the Buddhist community, the Hindu community, the Baha'i community, the Unitarian community, the atheist community. We're to pray for these people and pray that not only does God reveal to them who he is, but that we can act in such a manner to where we can reveal to them that God gives us the word to speak to them and to love them, that we pray for people who disagree with us and that we love these people. That's what we're called to do. We have to pray. We also have to fill up with the Holy Spirit. A glass cannot spill what it doesn't contain. If we are not full, we have nothing to give to the community around us. We have nothing to give to the families around us. We have nothing to give to our own children. If we're not full of the Spirit, it does not run up over us and it does not affect anyone else around us. If we're only half full, we're good for nothing except for ourselves. We must be filled up. A glass can only spill what it contains. We must live our faith. Listen guys, words are important, but actions speak louder than words. When you go out and talk to people, be normal. Don't be a weirdo, right? Do you guys know people that speak Christianese? hey, what are you doing? You know, people that wear like a big piece of the original cross and, you know, like all stuff around their neck and they walk in and it's like, bro, man, I was just soaking about the sanctifying, justifying blood of the substitutionary atonement, bro. And a non-Christian goes, what in the heck are you talking about? But we live in such a bubble that we don't even know how to communicate with people different from us anymore. Let me tell you a story. One time I was asked to speak at a big church in North Detroit, Right? So I go up there to speak, big church, you know, three, four thousand, whatever the size was, big church. And the pastor of the church takes me out to a Starbucks before the, the, the lesson that night. And uh, he's on his phone, right? And he goes up to the lady, he's in front of me in line, you know, what can I get for you, sir? Uh, uh, iced coffee. He's busy, right? He's a pastor, you know, he's busy doing stuff on his phone. I walk up there and uh, I say, hey, uh, she goes, what can I get for you? I said, well, I'll take a venti iced coffee. But I said, hey, do you, do you go to school here in town? They have a big college like MTSU uh, called Oakland up there in North Detroit. And I was like, you know, do you, do you go to Oakland? She's like, yeah, I'm about to graduate. And I'm like, awesome. What are you getting your degree in? Oh, I'm studying film. And I'm like, that was my minor. That's awesome. What's your favorite movie? She's like, well, I love Francis Ford Coppola. I'm like, me too. Godfather. It's one of my I'm just confessing to you guys. One of my favorite movies. I love The Godfather. Great movie. And we started talking. She goes, Well, what brings you, up to, you know, up to up to Auburn Hills? And I'm like, well, I'm speaking at this big church down the road. You ever heard of it? And she goes, Yeah, yeah, yeah. She goes, what are you talking about? And I told her, and she goes, Well, maybe I'll come to that. I was like, well, cool, let me, you know, hey, let me get the address for you. They, they, yeah, swing by sometime, that'd be awesome. And so I went and got my coffee and I went to the edge of the thing, you know, to the end of the bar and the pastor of the church goes, and he's looking at me and he goes, what'd you do? And I was like, uh, I, I talked to her. And later on that night, he introduced me to the church, right, in front of all these thousands of people. And he introduces me to the church and goes, oh, man, Pastor Corey, you wouldn't believe this guy. We were at Starbucks earlier, and he was, like, talking to this girl. And the crowd was like, <gasps> and I'm in And I'm in the back of the room holding my Bible, and I'm going, what planet am I on right now? You know what their problem was? They have a preschool, an elementary school, a middle school, a high school, and a college that works out of the church, so you can literally never leave their bubble if you don't want to. So they don't even know how to talk to people anymore. They don't know how to carry on conversations with people anymore, and that church is a a fraction of what it used to be when I was up there. How do we do it? We share our stories, guys. This Bible doesn't mean anything to someone that doesn't believe in Jesus, but if you get to know somebody and they trust you, and they say, Corey, why are you a Christian? Well, gosh, in 2002, let me tell you where my life was. And I tell them the things that God has done for me and the physical healing I received and coming off of addiction and what he did for my wife who was an atheist and all these different things. And then they say, wow, okay, that means something to me. I trust Corey, I like Corey. So, okay, that testimony means something. Share your stories. Tell people what God has done for you. Know the truth and speak the truth in love. There's two very important things here. You know the only way to know the truth? You have to study the word of God. It's the only way we know the truth, and when you know the truth, what you know what the Bible says about abortion and violence, and when you know what the Bible says about governments and sexuality and all these other things, when you know the truth, then the second part is this. You have to communicate that truth in a way that doesn't condescend people and make people feel stupid or dirty or broken. You have to communicate it in such a way to where you say, I love you. You have to know this. I need to share this with you. And our problem mostly with Christianity is not that we don't know the truth. It's just we don't know how to communicate the truth. We do it with venom and hatred. And hatred has never brought anyone to a religion of love. It doesn't work. So we have to learn how to communicate the truth and speak it in love. And the last thing is we just need to be patient. Listen, relationships take time. They're frustrating, they're messy, they're inconvenient. If we're going to go deep with people, if we're going to love people the way Christ loves us, it is going to be inconvenient, frustrating, messy. But our entire faith can be summed up in one word. The Christian faith can be summed up in one word. Relationship. Relationship with him and relationship with each other. Guys, I brought this story up a couple of, I don't know, it was a month ago or so. I told you that it was very, very important that we go out and that we show the love of Christ and we treat people with respect and dignity and love them and tell them the truth when we find a good opportunity to. And that it's very, very important for us to go out and and, and share the faith. And I said the reason why it is so important that we focus on our homes and our schools and our jobs and our microcosm, why that's so important is because I told you I had watched a video of a 12-year-old girl that had hung herself on Facebook Live. I told you guys about that. You know what happened about three weeks later? A 14-year-old did it too, hanging for 40 minutes in her bathroom. Why is it important that we go out and share the gospel with people? Because people need to know that they are loved. Because people need to know that they are wonderfully made. Because people need hope. We live in a culture that is riddled with anger and fear and depression and anxiety. And so we need to go out and tell people. We need to go out and share hope with them and love with them. Listen, there is a world of such chaos right now that we are called, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, the ones that can come in and bring some normalcy, that can settle people down, that can introduce. He's called the Prince of Peace because that's what his spirit brings. And that spirit is in us that we can go out and that we can touch people's hearts, not because we're anything, but because the Spirit of God is with us, is with us. There's a summit. There's an impact. Is there a mountain to climb? Absolutely. But we can climb it with God's help. We can get to where we need to be. We can change homes and cities and nations and the world. We can do this but we've got to trust him and we've got to follow him. We've got to be patient. and We've got to keep diligently working. When we take communion today, guys, here's what I'd like to ask you to do. There'll be people up on the front uh, on both sides. If you need prayer for anything, please help yourself and have some people pray with you. Here's what I would like to ask of you when we take communion today. Communion table's all the way around, right? All the way around. After you ask God to forgive you of your sins because you have to to take communion, that's a biblical thing. Here's what I would like to ask you to do. Don't pray for yourself today. You can think about and praise God for how wonderful it is that He died on the cross for us and the fact that His Spirit is now available for us. But here's what I'd like you to do take a couple of moments when you get your communion and and just find someone. Bring someone up in your mind that needs to know the Lord or they're going through a rough time or just pray for your neighbor or if you want to pray for someone right next to you or pray for family members, don't pray for you. Pray for someone else and pray that God gives you the wisdom that when you encounter these people that you have the words to say to them, that the timing is right, that God leads you on how to show them the love of Christ. Pray for God to help you in this. We're in the middle of a fast Jesus said that some things only happen when you pray and you fast. We're in the middle of that right now. And God is looking to use you and I to go out and to turn the world upside down. That's us. That's us. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I love you so much. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who is not a believer and maybe they've been hurt by the church, I pray, Lord, that they would accept our apology. If there are people in here who are Christians, Lord, that have also been hurt by the church, and that's probably very many in this room, I pray, God, that they accept our apology, Lord, and that they know that that we're human and that we're flawed. Lord Jesus, for any non-believers in this room that don't know you but they're looking for the truth, God, I just pray that something spoken today just intrigues them or captures their attention and and that they'll continue to look for the truth. And God, for all the believers in here, Lord, Father, I pray right now that you give us a sense of urgency. I pray, God, that you put it heavy on our hearts, that there are literal neighbors who are drowning in depression, marriages that are falling apart, kids who are suicidal. I pray that you put a weight on us and an urgency on us to go out and to love the world around us, God, to take care of our home, to love our children and respect our spouse and love our spouse. And Lord, to be a positive light in our work and our schools. And Lord, just the little places we go, God, Lord, just fill us up with your spirit so we may be be equipped, that we may have the words, that we may have the patience and the gentleness and the self-control and the love, God. Lord, help us. We need you because this world needs you. And as we take communion today, God, and we remember the sacrifice you made for us, Lord, bring to our attention, bring into our mind someone that needs prayer, someone who needs our help, God, someone who ultimately just needs you, Lord. Bring it to our attention and let us focus on them for a minute and call out their name, Lord, so you can reach out and you can touch them, Lord. We love you, God, and we thank you, We praise you and we lift you up. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, there's communion all around you. Please be respectful if you choose not to take that. Men and women up here on my left and right to pray with you if you need it. Thank you guys so much.